Good morning, everybody. How are you guys? Seth and Chloe are upstairs. They are not those people who find their little spot and stay there, which is most of y'all. They moved upstairs. <laughs> um, we're in Romans chapter 12, and so if you have your scriptures, open them to Romans chapter 12, and we'll be reading verses 9 through 21 today. Romans 12, verses 9 through 21. Scott Von Shalia has memorized these verses and will be reciting them for the second service, but this was too early for a young man, so here I go. God's word, beloved. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with familial affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed them. If they are thirsty, give them something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on their head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And I'm just going to repeat the section we'll be focusing on today. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Uh, this is the word of the Lord. Let me pray for us. Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you for Romans chapter 12. I use it this morning to renovate our hearts and our imaginations to draw us again to, to Jesus and to bind us, um, to knit us together in love, as we've been saying, to make us a community that 
lives out these beautiful, beautiful words, would you by your spirit, slowly but surely, um, use this passage to, to let us be people of genuine love? Praying this in Christ's name, amen. Uh, we've been talking about what it looks like for us to knit our community back together in love. Um, that the pandemic and politics and all sorts of things have been, if you imagine our community like a warm knit sweater, those things have been like nails that we've caught on and we've torn and it's begun to unravel. But uh, the scriptures say that the Lord can knit us back together. And we've been praying that this passage in Romans 12 would be like a, like a loom or a needle that would weave the, the individual threads of our lives back together to be a community of genuine love. And that's what this section certainly is about. What genuine love looks like in a community. What it does. And these 25 or so commands that we've heard, what's interesting about them is that they're not commands. Um... Not in the Greek. They're not imperatives. They're present participles. Greek or grammar nerds. Present participles that describe continuous action and modify the word love. And so it says, let love be genuine. And then it says, what genuine love is like. So he's not saying do this or do that. Rather, what he's doing is he's giving us a picture of the kinds of things that true love does. We're to imagine each of these commands or, or words as being like a piece of a mosaic. That when you put them together, what you get is a portrait of genuine love. And as we walk through this text, we are to put our life and the life of our community, and we're to set it side by side with that portrait and to say, does this describe us? Is this what our love looks like? And if not, what should we do about that? And today we learn that genuine love or true love abhors what is evil and holds fast to what is good. Some of your translations might say to hate what is evil. And it may seem strange that an ex exhortation to love is followed almost immediately by a command to hate. But we shouldn't be surprised. Because love is so passionately devoted to the beloved object that it hates everything which is incompatible with that object's greatest welfare. And in this passage, the beloved object is the church. In fact, both of the verbs here are so strong. The word hate is actually weak. But it's, abhor is better, but we never use that word, so it stinks. 
But what it does is it, it expresses this strong aversion to be disgusted with, to loathe. But we don't use those, we don't use loathe either, really, to be grossed out by. And the other word for love's holding fast to what is good, it describes a, a sticking to or bonding like glue. So what does genuine love do? It's grossed out by evil and it's glued to the good. And we're going to just talk about those two things in turn. You ready? First, genuine love is grossed out by evil. Um, the first thing that I'd say about this is that I believe that what Paul is talking about is the evil that resides in our hearts. In other words, when he's saying abhor the evil, he's not talking about the evil out there. There are passages that talk about that. He's talking about the evil in here. Um, certainly elsewhere in scripture, we're called to confront and recognize sin and evil and brokenness in others and in our community. But in this passage, from verse 9 onward, the focus is on how individuals in a community treat one another. How we treat folks inside the church and outside. And, and Paul will close out this section of, of, of scripture in Romans 19. And if we have this slide, we can put it up there. This is how this section is closed out. He says, it's really beautiful actually. He says, owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. And then he goes into the Ten Commandments, how we treat neighbors. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not co covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Then here's the key verse for me. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is fulfilling the law. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. That's how he closes out his argument, how he summarizes it. That's his summary statement for all that what has gone before. That's what we're talking about, in other words, from verse 9 on. Genuine love does no harm to a neighbor. What true love looks like and what true love does is it always seeks the neighbor's good, in other words. And so when Paul tells us that genuine love abhors evil, he's saying it abhors evil as it relates to our love. We strengthen our love by never letting it be spoiled by involvement with evil. That if we compromise our love in any way, it's made impure. It's no longer genuine. To put it simply, he's talking about the things in us, the, the patterns of relating that get us into trouble with our loved ones, with our neighbor, that hinder our ability to love others. Do you have patterns in your life that are always getting you into trouble? 
that lead you to hurt others, that keep your love from being pure? He's saying we need to hate and abhor those things. It's those patterns in our life, the passive-aggressive remarks, the selfish move, the tone that you can take. It's learning to, to hate that thing, not yourself, but to hate the things that keep you from being the true self that Christ has created you to be. The person who God wants you to be. So genuine love recognizes the unloving patterns in our life that do wrong to a neighbor and it ruthlessly works to rid our life of all of them. And that idea mirrors the teaching of Jesus. We think about his teaching from the Sermon on the Mount and in Matthew 18 about how people can hurt one another. And remember what he says. He says, if your hand or foot causes you to sin, what are you to do? Cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life crippled or lame than to have two hands or two feet and to be thrown into the internal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, what do you do? Tear it out and throw it away. And of course, he's not asking for us to get rid of limbs. He's saying if the things you're looking at are causing you to hurt yourself or others, you need to stop looking. If the things you're doing with your hands and your feet are causing pain to you and others, you need to get rid of those things. If your feet are always causing you to go places that are getting you into trouble, you need to cut off your feet. In other words, don't go. And he's using this really ruthless language to describe our battle with these, these things. It's something similar, I think, to what Paul is saying here when he says, abhor what is evil. But in Paul, it's a little different nuance. Because he's not saying get love, genuine love gets rid of what is evil, though I think he'd want to say that, or avoids what is evil. He says abhors, which isn't something we do. It's something we feel. It's an internal reality. It's an inner response of the heart to the things that are happening in our lives that hurt the people around us. That we'd be disgusted by them. So this passage isn't about right action, orthopraxy. It isn't about right thinking, orthodoxy. It's about orthopathos, right feeling, cultivating holy emotions as it relates to our sin. Be grossed out by evil. Why grossed out? Because when we're grossed out, it usually causes a chain reaction of (laughs) related activity. Here's my illustration. A couple of weeks back, Uh, Katie and I were in the garage, and uh, 
we were, we were moving the, the stuff around because that's what we just do. We don't clean our garage ever. We just move the stuff around. And we moved the, moving the stuff around, we saw Mickey Mouse running across the floor. And uh, you may think that mice are awesome. We think mice are totally gross. And so one of us shrieked and ran out of the garage. And after she came and got me, <laughs> we, came, we came back in and we were both really grossed out. And that abhorrence led to a number of different things. We stopped just moving stuff around the garage. We cleaned that thing like we have never cleaned it before. We spent a tremendous amount of money on humane mouse traps and caught Mickey and Minnie and over the course of the week, six other of their fine and furry friends. Um, and even to this day, about a month later, you know this, man, when you see a spy or you see something, every time we're in the garage, you're more aware. You're perceptive. You're just on your toes. I think that's the, the reaction, the chain reaction that Paul's looking for. And it begins in the heart with a shriek and a run. And then it leads to cleaning and then killing and then being ever aware of what's going on in our life as it relates to those patterns of behavior. Not to, to flirt around with these things, to go thermonuclear. Um, that we would have this deep conviction about it and be changed at the level of the heart. That a movement in my life towards genuine love starts with ridding my life of the sin that keeps me from it. And ridding my life from it starts with this deep conviction, this abhorrence, um, feeling revolted by it. And you may, sound, you may say, that sounds like it's going to lead people to just carry too heavy of a burden. That's just, you're just leading people into having low self-esteem, into feeling a tremendous amount of shame. And I'll just tell you, it's the opposite. Here's, here's, here's my example from last week. Last week, I preached a sermon, 40 minutes, on genuine love. I talked about agape love. And I have a son named Abel, who's eight, and is now able to stay in the sermon uh, service with us. And he listens to his dad preach. And so he was in here for 40 minutes listening to his dad talk about genuine love. After the service, I went home, and Katie told me about something that Abel had done. And I, uh, I just lashed out at him in anger. I yelled at him. I made him feel shame. Um, I crossed a line as it related to both the, my tone and my intensity and uh, it just a f it was right before his soccer game 
So then we got into the car and we're driving to his soccer game. And I felt so burdened by what I had done. So heavy of heart that I had Kate pull over. And I felt so ashamed in the most holy way that I couldn't go on anymore pretending like things were normal. I had to stop the car and talk to everyone in the family about the disconnect between a man talking about love for 40 minutes in a public place and then privately yelling and changing the course of a whole afternoon. And I was so glad for that way. You know, the psalmist will talk about the, the Lord's hand heavy upon us. And I felt that. And I, it made me know that I was alive to the Spirit. That I was better than the moment that had just happened. I think I abhorred what I had done. And it led to a chain reaction I think that's what true love does. And I think in all of our lives, there's things we've become desensitized to. We've just come and we've just thought, ah, it's it's an old dog, new tricks, and you can't learn them type of thing. The way we don't listen to a wife or a, a partner or whatever it is in your life. We've resigned ourselves to these things. We're not friendly with them. We're just kind of numb to them in our lives. But to pray for holy disgust. You know that the hand of the Lord would be upon us when need be. So that we can be quick to repent, quick to change, quick to shed the tears that lead to true reconciliation and healing. Abhorring what is evil. The next thing he says is hold fast to what is good. And like we've said, the word hold fast here is a sticky word. In in Luke uh, chapter 10 verse 11, it's used to describe the way that dust will stick to the feet of someone in the first century who walked around in the dust. Be stuck to what is good. Be glued to what is good. And again, while there are any number of ways in which I think that statement is true, in which we could apply that statement to our lives, I think I want us to consider what it's like for us to be stuck to the good in others. I think this is the force of Paul's um, design in this text. The good in others. Consider the context. Throughout the passage, he's been talking to these Jews and Gentiles who just can't get along with one another. And he's been focused on how they perceive one another and their goodness. Think about all that language he used about us being humble to our own contributions, but being able to recognize the body of Christ in all of its various giftings and the ways that we need to acknowledge and cherish one another's gifts. So that's what happened just before this text. What happens just after it is Paul tells us to outdo one another in showing honor. 
Well, showing honor is just expressing our appreciation for the good that we see in another person. Being glued to what is good is the prerequisite to showing honor. And so I think he's saying meditate on someone's goodness, their beauty, their worth. Um, Paul throughout is desirous that we see the good in our neighbor, in, in, in our spouse, in the person sitting next to us in the pew. And if that isn't convincing, we have a parallel text in another letter of Paul that I think is really illuminating here. Uh, when you think of clinging to what is good, how could you not think about that beautiful passage at the end of Philippians 4? And if you're not familiar with it, I'll put it up on the screen for you. Those guys in the back are so good. It says, Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, let us think about these things. What's interesting about those verses, and they're beautiful, is that they are also said in the context of Paul trying to reconcile in strange parties together. So at the beginning of chapter 4, Paul famously calls out two women in the church, Eodic Iodia and Syntyche, and he says, y'all need to get together. Y'all need to reconcile. And what he goes on to do is share all of these gospel truths that are supposed to put their petty arguments into perspective so that they can get on with the work of reconciliation. And he closes out this passage with all these gospel truths with these wonderful words. Finally, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely. Now, in context, I think that Paul was driving at something very particular. And I'll just, I'll just paraphrase here what I think he was getting at. And you have to add a little phrase at the end of all of those little sentences. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true about the other person, whatever is honorable about the other person, remember Paul saying, outdo one another in showing honor. Whatever is just about the other person, whatever is pure about the other person, whatever is lovely about the other person, whatever is commendable about the other person, if there is anything worthy of praise about the other person, think about these things. And the word think there is an accounting term. So one that you would use uh, to, to sum a column of figures. And so Paul is saying, take every Christ-honoring and God-glorifying characteristic about another person, if there is anything worthy of praise, and add it up credit it to their account so that when conflict comes and you have to take a debit there's enough there (laughs) there's enough there so that forgiveness comes easy so that reconciliation comes easy when you're busy just consistently adding up everything that's good about someone it's It's impossible to stay angry at them forever. 
And so, Yodia and Syntyche, come on, ladies. Jews and Gentiles, come on, y'all. Grace Chapel, hold fast to what is good in one another. I think that's the force of what Paul is saying in this passage. When you put it together, I think it's pretty powerful. It's easy to let someone else's flaws blind us to the good that's there, isn't it? In the same way, it's so easy for us to minimize our own brokenness and sin. But doesn't it seem like such a Jesus-y thing to say, start with the log in your own eye? And begin with a generous evaluation of your neighbor or your worshiping community or your friend or your spouse. Genuine love does this. This is where it starts. It's the love that we see in the person of Jesus. Lived out perfectly. He abhorred the evil in the world. He shed tears over human brokenness. He bellowed at death at the tomb of Lazarus. He wept over the destruction that sin causes. And that deep well of emotion rose up in him and it caused a chain reaction that sent him all the way to the cross so that he could one day end evil without ending us. Because you see, for all of the brokenness and sin and evil in our lives, God loves us. He, he's just stuck like glue to some amount of goodness in us, in our world. He's just never given up on it. He, he so held fast to the good in us in the world that he believed it was worth saving. And he oriented his whole life culminating in the giving up of it so that we could one day have life eternally. I'm saying God's love is the real deal. It is not phony or fake in any way. And with it comes a total embrace, a, a full acceptance of us, and a sense that God will not tolerate anything in us that's not, that, that is contrary to his loving purposes. And he is working by his spirit to purge all of that nastiness from us and to transform our lives so that we can be, so we can live renewed in the image of his son so that our love could be genuine. So let's work on ridding ourselves of this stuff by asking for proper emotions, let's commit ourselves to the goodness of fallen people by recognizing their beauty and worth. Genuine love abhors what is evil. It holds fast to the good. Let me pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you for Romans 12 and how it leads us to consider what genuine love looks like. And we feel, our, we feel our lack 
when we read this, we're, we are convicted and yet we are incur- encouraged that you don't leave us <laughs> to ourselves, but you continue to work by your Spirit to renew us and to save us and to redeem us. And so, Lord, I, I pray that you would help us to learn to abhor what is evil and to hold fast in what is good, that these ideas wouldn't be abstract, but maybe there would be one thing in us that we could identify that we would ask, Lord, help me have holy emotions about this thing, Uh, redeemed emotions that would lead to a chain reaction that would lead to a saved, uh, a more sanctified life. And Lord, if there was one person out there whom we feel we've, their, their account in our heart is empty because we haven't been regularly thinking about their beauty, their worth, their goodness. Lord, I pray that, pray that we would be able to meditate on those things and fill the account up so that genuine love could be present. Maybe that's with a person. Maybe that's with this church. Someone's just angry at the church. Maybe it's someone in the church. And all these things lead us in genuine love. And thank you, Lord, that you loved us like this. Thank you so much for Jesus. We give you praise and thanks in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Amen.